0: The children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Luke 16.8 I'm sending you as sheep among wolves so be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Matthew 10.16 Occupy till I come. Luke 19.13 Well we have it now if we didn't have it before that what is needed are not Christian artists, but artists who are really Christian. We are to be as sheep among wolves with wisdom to discern the actions of the serpent while being harmless ourselves, the opposite of the serpent spirit. The children of this world are wiser than we are when it comes to operating in their system of things, Yet we are told to occupy, that is to do business until the king comes. In order to occupy, in order to confront the wolves, we must have a wisdom and a discernment that is not of this world. And we must carry on our warfare while never harming anyone except the enemy. A tall order, only possible by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, He anointed certain ones among the people with creative artistic gifts. Their job was to build the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God among His people. In the same way, there are those of us who are gifted to create a dwelling place for God in this present wilderness. They were careful after the Exodus to build God's dwelling place only according to the pattern that they were shown and we must discern the pattern God will inhabit in the forms that we are to build in our generation. Israel had the direct revelation given to Moses. We have the same spirit and word dwelling in us. We have grace that allows for error as we grow and learn, but the time is now, and we must be fully listening and not missing our cues. This is a time of great conflict But even greater opportunity. In the face of rising evil, increasing need, with new battlefronts on every side, should we spend our efforts on what seems to be some sheer frivolity? I've often said no, we should not waste any more time with secondary or even tertiary issues like the arts in the face of such rising confrontations in the world. Yet I am pulled by forces from within and without to return again and again to this frivolity. Mary's often amused at I, how I angrily turn off the television or stomp out of a theater, and we don't go near as often as we used to, I'll tell you, declaring that I will never waste another moment or penny on any of this mess. She knows that eventually in some form or other I will return to the matter of film and media and the arts. She knows it, not because it's some double-mindedness on my part, but that it has to do with the reality that humankind is unavoidably drawn to stories because stories express either the meaning of our existence or they seek to undermine or even destroy, depending on the spirit behind the story. We need to know our own story and to equally discern the enemy's darts woven through his stories. Sadly, this generation is mostly deprived of the ancient means of passing on reality via stories. We were not designed to sit for hours in front of an electronic screen and stare at flickering images. Once upon a time, the nightly family event was to open invisible treasure, passed on from parent to child, around a campfire or a family hearth. Even the most electronically seduced youth would gladly trade the vapid, insipid coldness of disembodied plastic-encased entertainment for one moment of the truly electrifying energy which enters the soul as the stories of their own heritage are verbally communicated directly to them by a flesh-and-blood representative of their very own family treasury. Imagine your grandfather telling the story, this is what we were, this is what we became, this is who we are, this is who you are. Who cares about special effects? This is the real thing. Who who cares about three-dimensional? This is multi-dimensional, yet up close and personal as it gets at the same time. Who cares about actors? You are in this story. It's your story being told to you by a member of your own cast. Maybe I romanticize this a bit too much, but I don't think so. Can you picture Joshua being bored as he sits and listens to Moses describe the events on the mountain? Would Frodo's mind wander like a freshman in math class while Gandalf is explaining to him the history of the ring, the ring in Frodo's own pocket? No, Joshua knows Moses' story is his story. Frodo knows Gandalf is describing Frodo's own destiny. We long for the story to be told to us so we will know who we are and what we are to do and to be so we can finish our own part of the great history. Yet sadly we are seduced by the sheer power of the age to squeeze what little we can from a heart-diminishing media screen. It's so rare to find a movie that is true myth, that is one that represents some aspect of the real story. And though we may find ways now and then to return to the much more meaningful and life-giving ancient ways, like maybe when a total power outage shuts down all of our electronics for a while, still we must discern the world we live in and seek to adjust to it in hopes for making as much good as possible be injected into it through us. And if that means electronically, then yes, there too. I mentioned how foolish a waste of time I felt film and art reviews are in times of trouble. But did you know... That as long as film has been publicly available, it has endured and even prospered during trying times such as the Depression and World Wars One and Two. In the runaway inflation of the Weimar Republic, which gave rise to Nazism, lines sometimes waited in every kind of weather to enter dark theaters. I wish we had time to take you on a tour of the content of pre-Nazi films. The dark, occult, sexually perverse, and totalitarian themes clearly foreshadowed the rise of the real horror to come and could have been an alarm bell if anyone had ears to hear the prophetic warning, but they were too busy at the theater or in the pubs to care. While stocks plummet, Netflix is very busy. For the people of the 21st century, film not only communicates our heritage but is a corporate mirror of the collective soul of a nation, reflecting what is at work in the dominant culture and, sadly, feeding more darkness into it, increasing the poison. In Weimar, the warnings were loud and clear to any discerning soul. So, what is the collective soul of America, the UK, and Europe? What is it saying about where we are headed? Know this. Once a collective population gives place in the public square to images of the cruel the perverse, and the demonic. They are corporately invoking the real presence behind the demonic dimensional image they welcome. This is the essence of idolatry. Weimar made place for imagined evil and soon got the real thing. Thankfully, in our unfolding story, there's not a total takeover of evil. There are flashes of light, and they are increasing. Though our dark is as bad as Weimar and sometimes far worse. There's also another power present. We have hope which Weimar rejected. Will we reject it or reflect it? There's a rising generation of young godly storytellers. Mm -hmm. Filmmakers, actors, musicians, dancers, artists, producers, directors, and writers. They seek to interject into the flood of morbidity, stupidity, and corruption real stories I cited above the well-known Lewis quote that what is needed are not Christian art works, but artists who are Christian. With all the improvements there are in films made by believers, there is still a vast territory yet to be taken and a lot to learn. Nearly every form of art produced by believers seems to lag behind the rest of the world and sadly often seeks to mimic the world rather than inform it. Jesus said the children of this world are wiser than the children of light. But he then said he was still sending us out to them as sheep among wolves and that we are to be wiser than the serpent, yet harmless as doves to people. We are to occupy, do business till he comes. That means that in every realm of endeavor, God will aid us to know and to do our art well. Wise as serpents while not in any way bowing to an evil mixture by compromising with evil, harmless as doves. Now, one note here. We don't have time to engage the much-needed conversation of how to do that wisely and well. Some of the tenderer of conscience may find certain portrayals of real life in films to be pushing the boundaries of decency in their opinion. And it's hard to determine and to judge if their concern is based on sanctity and godly reason or if it's hindered by an immature prudishness. We'll need God's wisdom to deal with it case by case. Sorry, I don't have the exact right answer but it's just one aspect of perfect knowledge I happen to be lacking. (laughs) Making good films or any art form is not evangelism. But it is what Francis Schaeffer rightly called pre-evangelism. How to accomplish the daunting task of being both wise and harmless will have to be our ongoing work. We will need each other and we'll need to be patient and respectful of each other and pray for each other. Paul's language with reference to the battle for the mind is always warfare language because the war is very real and it is a war for the mind of man. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down evil imaginings and crooked reasonings, and everything that exalts itself against the true knowledge of God. Ephesians 6, 2 Corinthians 4. We are certainly at war. This is not symbolic rhetoric. It is very palpable, and if you don't already know it, you will if you continue to set yourself to accomplish anything that confronts the evil strongholds. Lewis's wisdom, again, concerning how to maintain focus of the art in time of war is very helpful. Number one, and this is from his lecture, Learning in Wartime. Favorable conditions... War teaches us more than usual that favorable conditions to accomplish our work never comes. If what we do is needful in peacetime, it will be just as needful in wartime. War does not produce anything new. It only exacerbates the daily battles we all face in peace or war. Getting on with it is how you will get the work done, whether you feel inspired or not, whether conditions are favorable or not. Number two, frustration. Frustration is always present. In times of extra stress, culturally, there will be more possibilities for more frustration. We are given the present moment in which to live and to do our work. Happy work is accomplished by those who take their long term plans lightly and live in the present moment as unto the Lord. Number three, fear. Fear is a great distraction, and an energy waster, and a drain on the creative imagination as well as a dishonor to God. War does not increase the rate of death. It remains at 100%, whether we die soon from war or in 40 years from a disease. The contemplation of mortality may be a good stimulus toward clarifying our values And that in itself may help us overcome the procrastination of seeking favorable conditions that never come or allowing frustration to give us excuses for dawdling away our time. How serious is the war? Well, I often contemplated the question of how literal, how visceral this warfare would become as we approach the close of this age. How much of the science fiction of the screen of yesterday will become the science fact of tomorrow? How much will the veil which separates the visible and the invisible be torn open, allowing the world of principalities and powers to either pass in and out of our dimension or to fully invade it? This is obviously what's been occurring for decades with the UFO phenomena, for instance. There are increased signals of the same demonic portals now beginning to open on the earthbound level Reports by police and authorities of what have once uh, been considered fantastical demonic encounters are now on the increase. No longer are crazy headlines limited to merely yellow journalistic supermarket rags, you know the kind I mean, with such accompanied headlines as woman dressed in sumo wrestler's suit assaults girlfriend in gay pub for waving at a man dressed like a Snickers bar. No, I didn't make that up. No, these are reputable reports in fairly respectable news sources. And we have practiced the presence of evil and evil is coming. We have called for Tash and Tash has come. Could some of the symbolic visions of Revelation be more than symbolic? We have good reason now to wonder. Well, there's a visual search for life John lists the trinity of temptation as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's always worth remembering that God forbade the visual to be placed above the hearing of his word. Not only because no visual can accurately portray him, but also because the visual has a power to override what is heard. Idols of the eye become idols of the mind. While hearing truth is incarnated into our inner being itself, the prince of this world will build for us and for himself a huge idol factory. This is alluded to in both Daniel as seen in the hideous strength of King Nebuchadnezzar's image and in Revelation as the image of the beast. Revelation 13 verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And it performed great signs and wonders causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of those signs, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth and compelled them to set up an image in honor of the beast. And it was given power to breathe life into the image of the beast and to compel all to worship it. If Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in hopes of pulling him from his true human self, expect him to do as much of the same as possible to us. Mary and I were nearly trampled to death, not really, but almost, in the Tower of London near the Crown Jewels by an invading army of not military, but a bit more dangerous, Japanese tourists with cameras. After surviving their entrance, I asked one of them carefully why they took so many pictures. They do, you know pictures of everything, pictures of each other taking pictures, pictures of the pictures they took. He paused for just a moment and answered, we are trying to capture life. I understood. A culture that has lost its father figures, its identity, and its very vision of living and purpose. A culture that excels in high-tech materialist productivity as well as in suicide a culture with no transcendent vision takes pictures in an attempt to capture life." So it is that the Japanese are now the chief innovators in turning the movie-going experience into what is now being called the coming, quote, mind's amusement park of the very near future. The first of its kind is a prototype in Yokohama, Japan, and it takes visitors on a multi-level visual experience. The merging of the visually novel with real footage is aimed at giving the viewer a completely illusory inner experience. The article explains, quote, cinema is only a hundred years old, so we are just beginning to learn how to manipulate visual perceptions. This is when cinema will quite literally start to merge with and replace real life. The reporter goes on further to explain how their scientists are working on how to manipulate senses directly through the brain itself, bypassing even this newest technology. Data can be directed into the brain and alter the audience's reality. Any fantasy of any subject matter can be injected into the brain. Memories can be altered or injected as the consumer desires The lust of the flesh will be able to fully satisfy the lust of the eye, all accomplished with the pride of self-divinity. The border between fiction and reality will fade, and some people will live most of their lives in a profoundly manipulated world, the article says. People's thoughts, experiences, and behavior will lie in the hands of those who control the software, People will be able to alter their past by controlling their past and altering their past and altering them as they see fit. The writer who is all for this, by the way, acknowledges that some will refuse to participate and try to demand that laws be enacted to interfere, but he celebrates the worldwide democracy of the Internet voter who will, quote, come to our rescue, end quote, to save the images of the beast from those renegades, he calls them, who will seek to remain unplugged. No wonder scripture refers to the end of the age as those who will worship the beast and its image. The word in Greek for beast here is therion and refers to that which is wild, untamable, flesh-devouring, and ferocious. Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war against him? 13 verse 4 says. This phrase seems to imply more a passive resignation of helplessness from fear rather than a worshipful sense of awe. To me it shouts of the feckless masses going with the flow of cultural idolatry. They received the mark Revelation 16:13. The Greek word kerygma means an imprint or an engraving. But outside the New Testament, it always referred to the fangs of a penetrating serpent. Symbolically, it refers to the actions of the hand and the thoughts and affections, the forehead. They received a mark in their hand or their forehead, We should be far more concerned with the present serpentine imprints on our minds and imaginations and actions than with any futuristic theories about computer chips, etc. Valid as that may turn out to be, who cares if the computer chip turns up if by the time that happens we've already been snake-bitten to the core. When TV was first being proposed, it was hyped as being a great and profound tool for education, a tool sent from heaven for the enhancement of arts and culture, so on and so forth. It has not been so. Yes, God does use it. Yes, there are wonderful exceptions to the rule, but the vast majority of television's fruit is rotten. What do you suppose would come from access to a technology as the Japanese are pursuing In H.G. Wells' science fiction novel, The Time Machine, Wells describes a world of the future populated on the upper surface by the Eloi. They are the tamed, passive, seemingly happy herd who are maintained in their vapid stupor the same as cattle or chickens would be when the siren sounds and the great metal doors open. A certain number of the Eloi, hypnotically and zombie-like, walk down into the nether regions, into the realm of the controllers below, who are called the Morlocks. When the time traveler asks why they respond like this, his young host replies with a vacant grin, Oh, Morlocks, eat Eloi. Who is like the beast who can make war against him? In a later preface to his Brave New World, Aldous Huxley wrote these words, There is, of course, no reason why the new totalitarianism should resemble the old ones. Government by clubs and firing squads, by artificial famine, mass imprisonment and mass deportation is not merely inhumane, it is demonstrably inefficient, and in an age of advanced technology, inefficiency is sin." A really efficient totalitarian state would be one in which all the powerful executives and political bosses and their army of managers control a population of slaves who do not have to be coerced because they love their servitude. They make them love it. It is the task assigned. He refers to the great value of legalized drugs circus-like extravaganza entertainments which would provide the illusion of unity and community, and the focus on the supremacy of feelings over reason to seal the fate of the managed herd, all the while I might add, believing that they are free and informed. But we don't have to delve too far into the future. Our present experience, apart from such high-tech innovations as we've been describing here, are enough to sound the alarms. Movies can be dehumanizing in the hypnotic strobe-like effects it has on the brain as well as in the message of the story. Brain research shows that the average brain consciously absorbs only about 20% of what it's observing, leaving the remaining 80% to penetrate the unconscious, there to work, either for good or for evil. Films have been re-educating the public for decades, but never more so than in the past four decades. From Star Wars to Starman to Stargate, an increasingly godless culture looks to the stars for a spaceman messiah, and the enemy of God is more than willing to meet them. Arizona State University, for instance, has a program for exploring the communication with what it calls entities. Called Sophia, after the Greek goddess of wisdom, the focus of this program is to explore strange new worlds and boldly go where no university tax-supported program has gone before. That is, contacting any transcendent force that might be out there just so long as it's not the Judaic Christian God. It would require a complete series of its own for us to list even a short overview of the many technological thrusts toward the reconstituting of human DNA in order to form a man-like being that is no longer in the image of the real God but in the fallen, deplorable image of a satanic counterfeit. At some point, if left to itself, Man's technological ventures will take him to a place of horror which fantasy films are now preparing the public for. Now, What is God's agenda in the face of this insanity? Let's spend our closing moments answering that question as best we can. In the face of the devil's razzle-dazzle, there is the simple gospel. God has chosen the foolishness of a simple telling of the story to save people. If we're finding ways to awaken a hunger for that story by pre-evangels through the arts, we're on the right track. Now we may be wondering, but how in the world will we ever regain the attention of a population so hypnotized by what you've just been describing? And it'll only get worse as this kind of technological advancement increases. And I perfectly understand your concern about that question. But we must remember that the authors of these articles as well as the architects of this kind of technology are mostly humanist materialists. They truly believe their own press. They never take into consideration the parts of the story that don't fit their agenda like the humanity of man the God-ordained hunger for love, relationship, meaning, and permanence. So they would like you to think that their new world is the new world but there are two elements they completely miss the first one is the human hunger for real relationships in truly real time and space living that no entertainment no matter how razzle dazzle no matter how high tech can ever meet and number two They fail to take in consideration the shaking of the earth under the weight of human sin and demonic attack. The positive of number one coupled with the negative of number two makes for a rude interruption in the proposed electronic nirvana of the technological fairyland. Already there is a growing dissatisfaction with hyper-techno special effects by the way, even in the present day. Jaded and bored audiences who would never be impressed with my initial Star Wars Star Cruiser experience are even burned out by the superpowered visuals of the most recent pyrotechnic spectaculars. For some, and I would tend to say for maybe most, the rising question is simply the same one we've all asked when we were small. Can you just tell me a story? Not just any story, but a story about life, love, lasting bonds, and meaning. Got any of that? Well, they don't. We do. I cannot buy into the eschatology that sees the end of history as a hopeless siege in which a tiny remnant of shivering believers is rescued just in the nick of time from the overwhelming surge of antichrist evil. I don't read it that way. The ever-increasing evil is swelling from its inner corruption and it flexes itself up to full height only because it knows its time is short. The king is coming. And there will be no conflict when he comes. Evil is over. How it all works out in the details is anyone's partially informed guess. But the final outcome we know It is the resurrection. Corruption shall put on incorruptible. The groaning earth shall be liberated into the glorious liberty of the children of God dancing in celebration. And death shall be dead. So I am willing to remain vague on details till clearer revelation comes on those details. But the scriptures are clear on this that the great final harvest will be preceded by the latter rain just as it was in Israel's agricultural year. Joel tells us, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams and upon my servants and my handmaids will I pour out of my spirit and it will come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Joel 2.28-32 I believe that when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against it. Isaiah fifty nine nineteen. God seems to love to slay Goliaths with a David, overcome large armies with small bands of Gideon's army, split Red Seas just in the nick of time, and use one to chase a thousand and two to chase ten thousand. What will God do? teach you to do that will overcome some large enemy ten times your size no matter what field you're in there is some evil sown in that field some redemptive part of you can play in the overthrow of that evil and the liberation of that field here are just a few of the redemptive territory reclaimings that are already taking place that I personally know about that doesn't include the many I don't know about number one a well-known Christian entrepreneur has recently taken executive control of one of the largest and most powerful movie companies in the world and is in the process of changing the vision of that company to produce family-friendly, life-enhancing, well-crafted, well-written films, not Sunday schoolish films which tell compelling stories in the most attractive and effective ways available to the to the craft. And it is not in California, but it is located in a Bible Belt state. Not that that really matters, except that California is losing its control over the industry. Now pray that these people will stay on course and not be deterred by the glamour of the world that is always trying to infiltrate. Number two, Glenn Beck's Mercury One is taking territory away from the age-old controllers of media re-educating an entire generation in truths we almost forgot by producing films and documentaries which rival any in quality and totally surpass almost all in truthfulness and value. And that's just the beginning. Small Christian-run production companies are sprouting up in many places outside Hollywood, but with the help of many who were formerly part of the movie industry within Hollywood they've had to leave California due to the socialist takeover there these highly trained and gifted crafts people are helping make christian movies far more professionally and more appealing number 4 christians are working hard to hone their storytelling craft by learning to not be so preachy and just simply tell great stories well We've already explained in our previous sessions how trying to be too obvious in our presentation deprives the story of its power and effectiveness rather than increases it. Rather like when you explain the punchline of a joke ruins the joke. The power of the punchline is that it is not obvious and until the end. You don't see it coming. And the power of great drama or even effective comedy is that it's free to just sit on its own bottom and not try to reduce itself only to being a mere vehicle for some other message, even if it's a gospel message. Number five, Christian film is learning to not be so fearful of offending those whose sensibilities may be so out of touch with the real pain of the world that they cannot see any redemptive value in telling a story the way it really is. This is a difficult balance to maintain, which I've already mentioned before. There are those who are so set on being cutting edge that they have become just another poison well of worldly compromise. But the answer to that is not to make films that are so squeaky clean that the audience feels they're watching a Sunday school project filmed by middle schoolers. Tell the story. Let the audience get the grit and reality of it. It can be done without gratuitousness, but not without adult poignancy. This will take time and practice and grace and patience and humility, as I've already said. But thankfully, we're finally seeing this mature element in film. This is real maturity, referring to Hebrews 5 again. Not the so-called maturity of Hollywood, which is so often not a matter of maturity, but just the gross reveling in the tawdry, the sordid, the lustful, and the bloody. Now, it's hard for those of us who are older to adjust to the new reality of a technology that offers not just new ways of communication, but so many new ways. I mean, there's so many, regardless of the drawbacks and even negatives we've already mentioned. At the same time, the gospel is going out all over the earth in a thousand forms, and only the most dried-up old stick-in-the-mud critic would refuse to give thanks to God for that fact. In order to maybe illustrate the kinds of ways now available I want to use a recent example that came to my attention and I want to use a politically and emotionally difficult subject on purpose to try to illustrate this point. I hope the reason for that will be made clear as we unfold the story. A few weeks ago a young filmmaker contacted me concerning a YouTube item he wanted me to see. He didn't produce it he just happened on it. But he told me not to be put off by the surrounding YouTube films which would accompany the one he wanted me to view. I explained that I understood the perils of going on YouTube carelessly. Like the River Ganges, which I referred to previously, it has everything, the good, the bad and the ugly, floating on it. But that turned out to be the whole point of his concern. He said Yeah, I know, but the people who might be most helped by this particular story would never go looking for it were it on some Christian post. And if Christians made this film, which is not likely, they wouldn't necessarily list it among the titles where you would find it. They would probably put it in some Christian format. For those unfamiliar with YouTube, it's a place where any and every sort of personal film of performances, Silly tricks, meaningful events, stupidity, you name it, are all on parade. It is enlightening and dangerous, addictive and informative. It can help you learn to cook, fix a broken window unit air conditioner, or find out more than you ever wanted to know about what goes on in a college dorm, the Ganges River. So in the midst of this recent platform, a number of young filmmakers have taken their time funds, and energies to begin to produce short stories. These short films are usually well produced with full orchestrated soundtracks sometimes, really good acting, and sometimes they push the borders of decency. For often they are not always, but often films that have a particular political, social, and sexual theme that they're trying to promote And in less time than it would take to watch an old Andy Griffith rerun without the commercials, about 20 minutes, they can engage the mind and the emotions on several levels, again, for good or for ill. Many attitudes have been influenced by the emotional effects of these short stories, most of them young, because it's mostly young people that know about it and access it. But I want to tell you about this one, which was certainly not a politically popular message to conservative people. But it certainly was not popular among the liberal side either. It was just a story. I doubt this film was made by disciples of Jesus. I even doubt if it was meant to make any sort of political statement. It seems more to have been simply the painful story of either the writer or of, uh, of the screenplay or, or of someone he knew and cared about. It was possibly only meant to be a cathartic exorcising of his own pain, maybe. Or maybe an attempt to just shout out loud to others about the painful topic. Only God knows. That's the beauty of this sort of presentation. It can be useful for good on many levels, maybe only to those who are emotionally affected by it for whatever reason. It's not overtly religious, or even necessarily overtly moral, it's human, and that can be very powerful in the hands of the Holy Spirit. The 20-minute or so film begins with a young male prostitute being hired by a man who is the father of a boy of around age 8. The intentions of the immoral relationship between the man hiring and the prostitute are Obvious, but they're not displayed in too gross a form but you get the idea very quickly of what it's all about the father of the boy has to leave for the evening on business for a while and after their activities he asks his young man for hire to watch his son while he's out in the course of the passing evening the child gingerly enters the room where the male prostitute is sleeping and explains that he is terrified to be alone in the other room because of the monsters. The acting and directing are masterfully portrayed. The mention of terror and monsters brings back memories that are reflected in the wordless facial expression of the young man. And he, of course, tells the child, of course he can stay. The boy crawls up in bed and lies down. They are fully clothed, and the distance between the man and the boy is such that nothing pedophilic it is even at all suggested. To any discerning person, they will understand this to be a grown man seeking to comfort and protect a frightened child whose irresponsible father has obviously not protected him. The young man reaches over to place his arm on the child simply to reassure him, just as bad timing would have the father come through the door. He immediately sends the frightened little boy out once again, with the kind of impatient energy that is typical of an addict who's eager to get to his drug of choice, in this case, sex. Again, the child protests with tears that he cannot face the dark because of the monsters. The father sternly rebukes his plea for safety from the monsters, and the child leaves the room crying. He turns then to the young man and says, Basically, I hired you for me, not for my son. At this point the prostitute shoves him away his face clearly exuding disgust and anger at the man who not only has so failed his own little boy but is now a vivid reincarnation of the prostitute's own father remembering his own childhood fears fears that are now morphing into anger. The father remains sitting on the floor right where he has just been shoved as the young man for hire walks out, tossing his evening's earnings back at the failed father figure. The camera follows him into the semi-darkened hall where the child is shivering in the shadows. He leans down to welcome the child into his arms. As he hugs the boy goodbye, he says to him, It's going to be okay. Tonight you killed the monsters. You killed yours, and you killed mine. 20 minutes of well-crafted light and shadows, facial expressions, and tense emotion, and an entire unspoken but clearly discernible backstory emerges, which might deeply awaken, in those who watch it, memories, prick the conscience, or bring even conviction of sin, or at least a stir of a possible longing for freedom or a number of other possible human responses. It was not a film aiming at awakening lasciviousness, and if anything, it was strongly rebuking any mistreatment of a child for any reason. It was offered, obviously, by someone painfully familiar with the sinful appetites of the sex for higher underbelly of the world. But most of all, it was a scream for help, for freedom from the monsters. This to me is a fingerprint of grace. There's an old gospel song that says God walks the dark hills to find you and me. Well he walks the dark city streets too and the dark hallways and even YouTube videos. There's a coming outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we've just referred to from Joel chapter 2 right before the harvest The body of Christ must come together and become as one. That doesn't mean we become uniformity. It means we come into unity. Jesus prayed for it and it must come to pass, John 17. As it does come to pass, there will be a greater release of God's power on a level not seen even by the early church. It is partially to do with the healing of the divisions in the body that stand between those who center on the Word versus those who center on the Spirit. There is no division between the Word and the Spirit, but only in those who take a stance on one as opposed to the other. When the Word and the Spirit unite in love and faith in His people, a great release of creative life energy and power will come. The old-timey preachers used to say, too much Word and you dry up, too much Spirit and you blow up, Word and Spirit, you grow up. That's what this is referring to. There was a prophetic word spoken by Smith Wigglesworth right before his death in 1947. It went like this. During the next few decades, there will be two distinct moves of the Holy Spirit across the church. The first move will affect every church that is open to receiving it and will be characterized by a restoration of the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The second move will result in people leaving the historical churches and planting new churches. In the duration of each of these moves, the people who are involved will say, this is the great revival. But the Lord says, no, neither is this the great revival, neither is the other one the great revival, but both are steps toward the final harvest. When the new church phase is on the wane, There will be evidenced in the churches something that has not been seen before, a coming together of those who emphasize the Word and those who emphasize the Spirit. When the Word and the Spirit come together, there will be the biggest move of the Holy Spirit that the nations have ever seen. It will mark the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed in former years. Then will begin the missionary move to the ends of the earth. It's common for most generations of elders to see and disdain the weaknesses and fecklessness of the generation coming behind them. Sometimes these judgments have merit, but often they are unloving and undiscerning and unfair. When we speak of the present generation as spoiled, drowning in electronics, and more narcissistic and self-focused than any previous, we may be somewhat accurate. But they are also a generation that has been injured by the loss of family, the lack of fathers, and disillusioned by a Western church system that has been devoid of reality and power. Among the word churches, there has been a manifest lack of ability and power to bring help and healing to people. And among charismatic groups, there has been such a horrendous lack of stability, maturity, and even morality that many of this generation have thrown the whole thing out. But this level of hunger that this emptiness has produced in this generation is a perfect prerequisite for the great outpouring of the presence of God that will begin to meet their cry for reality. Let me close with this example. It's only one of many that could be cited. In a recent Georgia high school, a beloved teacher was removed from his classroom and fired for the crime of having a Bible sitting on his desk among his private items. When news of his dismissal reached the student body, an immediate sit-in resulted. Hundreds of students poured into the halls and demanded their teacher's restoration, which was soon following. Here is what one of the students had to say about this small earthquake. Brace yourselves. We millennials are coming. We are unlike anything you have ever seen. We are the Lord of the Rings generation, the servant of the secret fire. You shall not pass. We grew up being lied to about tolerance and marriage and friendship and love. We've seen all the fakery of our previous generation and are totally skeptical of everything. We are yearning for what is real. So when the way, the truth, and the life is given to us, we want to hear it. I wish I knew what to call it. It's like being pregnant. It's like kickboxing and sailing a vessel directly into the wind energy of a coming storm. Whatever it is, I can already feel it. The world is going to hit my generation hard, but we'll absorb the damage and astonish our detractors, smile and say, is that all you've got? Then the floodgates are going to open and something big is going to be poured out on the world. Lord, may it be so. And may it be soon. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening God bless you all in your work, in your play, in your relationships, in your creativity, in all that you put your hand to. May you be faithful to the end of the harvest. In Jesus' name. Amen.